You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Devin Lincoln, and I'm an attorney in Lozano Smith's Monterey office. Our topic today is religion in the schools, and I've got the perfect team to discuss this hot button issue. First, I want to introduce podcast veteran Josh Whiteside. Regular listeners to this podcast will remember Josh from earlier episodes, and you'll know how interesting and informative he can be to listen to. So, Josh, can you introduce yourself? Thank you, Devin. It's nice to be back. Uh, It's great to see the success of the podcast uh, since we first began uh, a year ago. Um, So I'm Josh Whiteside, an associate in the Fresno office. I've been with the firm for about three years, practicing for close to six, uh, specializing in student free speech and staff free speech uh, matters, as well as some board governance and board member speech. Great. Great. Thanks, Josh. So now I want to introduce the man who puts the Smith and Lozano Smith, Mike Smith. Um, Mike, it's a pleasure to have you join us today on your first, but hopefully not last, appearance on the podcast. Can you give us a quick intro? Good morning. It's great to be part of uh, today's discussion. So my name is Mike Smith. I am a partner with Lozano Smith. I work out of our Fresno office. I've been representing school districts for about 38 years now, and uh, I love talking about First Amendment issues, free speech, establishment of religion, and so forth. So excited to be part of this discussion about religion in the schools today. So let's start with a legal perspective, because we're lawyers. Um, Mike, issues in school, about religion in school, are governed by the First Amendment. We all know that. So tell us generally what guidance the First Amendment provides regarding religion in school. Well, this can be a complicated uh, topic. Yeah. Uh, so we, mm-hmm. in the First Amendment, of course, we have you know, the five freedoms. Uh, three of those five freedoms are, are at issue in this conversation. Free speech free exercise of religion, and the no establishment of religion clause. So we're not really going to be focusing today on uh, the right of citizens to seek redress or petition or the right to uh, peacefully assemble the other uh, two Mm -hmm. freedoms that are part of the First Amendment. So our conversation is really trying to balance a student's free speech rights, what are employee free speech rights, and how do we as school districts facilitate the sharing of faith traditions, teaching about religion, how do we facilitate all of that while at the same time not violating the establishment uh, clause requirements? Okay. So, you know, when we think about it, if you talk for a second, and maybe that's a a way to focus our conversation, let's let's talk first about a student's rights. Mm -hmm. So students really have very, very broad free speech rights at school, including the free exercise of religion and the right to talk Uh, about their faith traditions. Students have the right to join uh, religious clubs, Uh, for example, a Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Muslim Students of America, a Good News Bible uh, Club. All of those clubs, which are religious in content and they're discussing faith issues, those are all absolutely permitted under the First Amendment and and we're going to talk a little bit later, I think, about the Equal Access Act. Uh, Students have the right to talk about uh, religious issues with with fellow students. Um, If a teacher asks for them to write about something historically, for example, in a social studies class, they could be writing about um, the role of religion historically. 
So mm -hmm. the idea here is that students can, you know, wear clothes, wear jewelry that expresses their religious faith. They have the right to be excused to attend certain religious traditions and ceremonies. So that free speech, free exercise uh, clause of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution gives students very, very broad rights to share, share their faith. Uh, the issues that sometimes we hit in the school setting is that sometimes teachers and administrators feel like they have those the same breadth of right as a student. Right. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, the reality is that um, when we talk about administrators and teachers, their free exercise rights are actually more, more limited than those of a student. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is that the Establishment Clause requires governmental agencies, including school districts, of course, to be neutral with respect to religion. So the Establishment Clause, the concept here is that we're neither going to promote religion, mm -hmm. but we're not going to denigrate religion. Mm -hmm. We're going to allow religious speech, but we're not going to discriminate against speech based on its religious content. Right. So those are, uh, there's a lot of balancing act that, that goes on there. So one of the hard questions I think that school administrators often face is, you know, when am I speaking as an administrator where I have to be cognizant of establishment clause concerns? And when am I speaking as a private citizen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you are, are a teacher, are, are you permitted in the staff room and away from students to, you know, talk about your your faith tradition or the service that you're going to? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, are you permitted to really uh, read religious books and so forth? A absolutely. Uh, the, the problem comes when you're speaking to students really during your work day. Okay. When you're communicating with students, whether you're the principal, the vice principal, a district office administrator, or a teacher, at that point in time, you're really representing the government, if you will. And therefore, you, you, know, you can't be promoting or denigrating religion. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's actually a very interesting case that comes out of the Ninth Circuit. Uh, it's called the Bremerton case. And in this particular case, it involved a high school football coach. And the football coach was you know, loved by all of his student athletes. So he was very successful. He was loved by the community, loved by the athletes. And he, he began a tradition of praying with the students and then that tradition moved sort of from the locker room prayer out into the 50-yard line. And at the end of the game, student athletes would gather around him and he would lead the students in prayer. That became very controversial, mm -hmm. uh, so controversial, in fact, that the uh, Satanist group said, school district, if you don't shut down the coach's practice of leading prayer immediately after a football game, you know, then we're going to come and we're going to pray on the 50-yard line as well. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the superintendent of this school district navigated this issue very well, and he basically said, you know, if you want to talk about character, if you want to talk about values, you can do that. But to lead a prayer, and in this case it was, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Mm -hmm. So it was an overtly uh, Christian religious prayer, and he said, I quit then because I believe I have a free exercise right. I am not speaking as a coach on behalf of the district. I'm speaking from my own heart. Mm -hmm. And this case worked its way up through the courts and the court said, no, school district, you win. You carefully and properly balanced all of the legal issues here. And the, the key holding from that case was that whether you're again a coach, a teacher, or administrator, even if it's 
you know, technically after school hours, because this was a coach, right, at a football field after school had ended, he was still speaking as a district employee. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it was employee-based speech uh, that the school district could regulate. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. That's great context. Um, So now I want to sort of drill down on some of the issues. Josh, um, Mike already referred to this, but can you talk to us about the rules around allowing student clubs, student religious clubs on campus, and and I guess in particular, um, what California law says about that issue, as well as some of the federal law? Sure. So the Equal Access Act is a federal law that applies to secondary schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, the law's restrictions and obligations are triggered uh, once uh, a non-curricular student group is allowed to operate on a, on a campus. So there are some curriculum student groups, so if it's like a history club or a literature club kind of focused in on celebrating a particular subject that is covered in the normal school day. If students establish those types of clubs, that doesn't trigger these rights under the Equal Access Act. Mm-hmm. But if it's for a non-curricular student club, so celebrating someone's heritage, uh, someone's uh, political ideology, uh, a hobby, a topic, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a, um, maybe a, uh, a job focus. Um, mm-hmm. So if it's going to be about computer programming club, mm-hmm. something like that, that would be a non-curricular student club. And so a district is required under this law to accord the same access to the facilities during lunchtime for those student relig- for those clubs. Um, they must provide the same access to student religious clubs. Uh, Now, these clubs have to be student initiated, so not it can't be directed or controlled by an outsider. So some other massive corporation or interest group agency, something like that, can't direct or or supervise or lead these discussions. It has to be a student initiated and student led student club. Mm -hmm. Those are what is allowed on our campuses. Okay. And in regards to your question about about state law. Mm You know, the the Equal Access Act is actually silent on its applicability to junior high schools, Um, but we can infer from the education code and its definition about secondary schools to include uh, junior high schools. And there are various laws that are contained within the education code that talk about, you know, non-discrimination towards religion and anti-religion. So this would include atheist clubs would also be allowed on campus. And so it essentially requires the district to allow for those clubs to continue to meet on campus in the same fashion that any other non-curricular student club is able to meet. Okay. It just has to be during non-instructional time, can't be disruptive, um, and the speech, you can't necessarily limit what it is that is talked about in those settings unless it's going to be, uh, there's going to be some other speech restriction on it that's set by the Supreme Court or set by law. Okay, interesting. You know, one comment I might add here, too, Mm -hmm. is that these same principles of the Equal Access Act that Josh just talked about have really been incorporated through various court decisions Mm -hmm. with good news clubs. So typically Mm -hmm. speaking, an elementary school might have a good news club, which is typically um, a Christian-oriented reading of the Bible, singing songs, and, and so forth. And the same principles that apply to the Equal Access Act in grades 7 to 12 really apply via the First Amendment to the elementary grade levels. So even if it's an elementary school and they wanted to have a religious or non-religious 
um, non-curricular student-initiated club, that would absolutely be required by the law. Okay. Okay. Great. And, and, and honestly, there was a, a recent uh, attempt by Satanist clubs to establish mm-hmm. uh, a foothold in, in high schools uh, across the, the state of California. Basically, wherever there was a good news club, mm-hmm. the Satanist club would show up and try to establish a, a foothold at those schools. And so similarly, uh, you know, th- this particular sa- uh, Satanist club that was being established was not actually based on a, a religion or celebration of Satan, but I think they wanted to promote math and good uh, eating or something like that. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it was more of a, of a non-religious uh, based club, but they were using the term Satanist as a way to kind of goad or to try to create controversy uh, and try to, to catch administrators napping and, right. and maybe making the, the wrong decision uh, just simply because of past uh, societal uh, interpretations of Satanism as well as uh, a, re- a rejection of that by a lot of people in our society uh, throughout history. Right. So they were kind of pushing the button. Um, and, uh, you know, it's important to remember to stay neutral uh, with regards to whether it is a, a different religion uh, an anti-religion, an atheist group, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, the government officials uh, have to be neutral with respect to those decisions and treat everybody requesting time during the student, during the non-instructional time during lunch for a student group the same. Right. Even if you're getting pushback from people who don't don't like that club being on campus. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, probably the fastest growing religious group in the United States is those that have no identified, um, no identification with any religious organization, Mm -hmm. the none of the above, Mm -hmm. not none as in in Mm U-N, although we appreciate nuns, too, (laughs) but the N-O-N-E, that, you know, is... It's the fastest growing group really in the United States. And many of those folks would call themselves perhaps spiritual, right. but not religious. Right. I was just and that's that. playing out on our campuses as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Interesting. Okay. So, so Josh, um, Mike touched on this in his discussion of the Bremerton case. But my next question is, what about district employees that are assigned to or help out with religious clubs can a district employee make personal statements about religion, or when can they? And can they lead students in prayer while performing the role of a club advisor? That's a good question, because most times to establish a student club, you have to have a, a staff member agree to supervise mm-hmm. during that hour. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it can feel like that staff member is endorsing whatever topic or hobby or whatever the subject of that club is. But really, the role of the staff member during that time, during that time of the student club, is only for supervision purposes. The school staff member should not be leading the students in prayer or participating in, in any student-initiated prayer during that time. Um, and they can only really uh, engage in non-disruptive private religious expression and activities on campus outside of that time, mm-hmm. uh, basically away from the students mm-hmm. um, and not even during instructional time. So they have these limited rights, but really the purpose of the student club is to respect the students' decisions to lead and to celebrate whatever the subject of that club is. Staff is just there to supervise, make sure everyone is staying safe uh, and is not engaging in a disruptive 
practice uh, in that classroom, you know, not messing with some stuff on the walls mm -hmm. or, you know, that sort of stuff. That's what the staff member is there to, to supervise. So any sort of private religious expression that they may wish to exhibit during that time really should be done privately away from the students in their own staff break room um, or in the classroom when the students are not present during other times of the day. That's really interesting. And you know, Devin, Josh is, uh, Josh's example is a perfect illustration of the comment that I made earlier about the First Amendment here, where students have broad right. rights of free speech and free exercise of religion, but staff have much more limited rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can understand why this would be challenging for staff to understand because you've got a group of students who have chosen to separate themselves from the rest of the group to for this specific reason and to share their faith and they're not impinging on anybody else's time when they're in these clubs. So it, it, it's, it's, it can be really confusing. Yeah. So in other words, this is not a youth group time. You know, the staff mm -hmm. member is not leading youth group. Youth group can be on Sundays or during the week. Um, this is a time for staff to do their jobs um, and to supervise uh, mm -hmm. during the school day. And mm -hmm. as a government official, that's their role. Um, it's not to to take the place of any sort of church function or, or to be an extension of that, even if they are a member of the church community with those students on the weekends and weekday nights. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. That's 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 the key takeaway. Um, so so Mike, can you talk to us now about the rules regarding teaching about religion? Right, which is a proper st subject for for education. What must a school district do that? wants to teach, say, a world religion or religious history or, or a similar course to that? Your question is a, is a great one, and I, I love the way you framed it because mm -hmm. I think the wording here is very important. In other words, school districts are not authorized to teach religion mm -hmm. in the sense mm -hmm. of promoting religion because that would, of course, violate the Establishment Clause. But school districts, I think, can, should, and I would argue must teach about religion. So the wording here is important. Yeah, in fact, uh, in the United States Supreme Court decision back in 1963 in the Abington case, the, uh, the court said that one edu one's education is not complete without a study of religion. Mm -hmm. So even the highest court in the land has recognized the importance of teaching religion in public schools. And by the way, the case law here is pretty uniformly consistent. In other words, if a school district does appropriate professional development and the staff know the sort of rules of the road, the courts have consistently backed school districts when they have courses about religion. So they may be teaching a comparative religion course, they may be teaching Bible as literature, they may be teaching the history of religion mm -hmm. in the United States and similar courses. And the it, when there have been challenges there, the courts defer to the school districts uh, choice of educational methodology and uniformly back and uphold a school district's right to teach about religion. And sometimes I think school administrators don't understand how strongly the law uh, allows that and somehow we've gotten into our, our belief systems of fear about teaching a controversial topic such as a world religion course when the, the courts have been uniformly consistent in allowing that. The key here, I think, is to do good preparation so that the manner in which the course is taught is academic, mm -hmm. it is not devotional, 
and it is uh, being taught for the purpose of educating, for understanding, but not for acceptance. So we're teaching about religion. We're not teaching Sunday school. This is not mm -hmm. a catechism class mm -hmm. or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Because remember, one of the mantras of our discussion this morning is that schools should be neutral with respect to religion. Mm -hmm. And you know, and one of the things that we're seeing from various school district clients is, um, especially over the last you know three to five years, is a, an increase in bullying issues, mm -hmm. uh, the use of Instagram and other you know social media platforms in particular has has facilitated a, a lot of um, I'll just call them acts of incivility. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they have led to discipline issues, even expulsion, and sometimes those um, those bad behaviors are generated through uh, religious discrimination or a feeling right. of bias or being bullied. Um, so the importance of teaching about religion, I think, really can't be um, emphasized enough. Um, as I made, made the comment earlier about pluralism in the United States, not only do we have an, an increasing number of people who believe them to themselves to be, you know, I would say, spiritual instead of religious and may not identify with a major faith tradition. But compared to 1970, we now have seven times more Muslims, right. 10 times more Buddhists, nine times more Hindus, and 220 times more Sikhs. Mm. So we are a religiously pluralistic society, right. and yet we're religiously illiterate. Students, in fact, as a population as a whole, um, really don't understand what are the basic tenets of the Christian religion or the basic tenets of what does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to be a follower of Islam? What does it mean mm -hmm. to be a Sikh? So having some class or some uh, course in which these materials are integrated where students can understand what those faith traditions mean, especially if we can approach these classes with a sense of finding common ground as opposed to seeking differences. Because mm -hmm. when we try to find common ground and we understand one another's history, I really just think that creates um, a sense of shared humanity yeah. where we can understand one another and relate to one another, even though we may not look the same, we may not think the same. And, and it's probably also important maybe to make a comment about that if this can be done using principles of civil discourse, mm -hmm. and you know, in today's world, we oftentimes don't really listen effectively. So one of the key concepts behind providing professional development where uh, students and faculty are taught principles of civil discourse is that effective listening, and it's listening for understanding and remembering that we don't have to have agreement. Right. So I may be a traditional Christian person that doesn't believe in gay marriage. I believe in a, a binary gender system and so forth. And I may be talking to the, the head of the GSA club that wants to have a, a gender spectrum and identity conversation. Mm -hmm. That's, that is a tough conversation. Mm -hmm. And what I'm suggesting is we need to have it. We need to have schools that are willing to create safe places for schools to teach about religion and to have these hard conversations because it's going to be the only way in which we really, as school districts, educate our kids to be effectively connecting to a democratic society. Right. 
you know, part of what I think is going on really nationally and internationally is we've had, we're so skeptical and, you know, there's so much, quote, fake news mm -hmm. around that we've lost our trust in our civic institutions and whether it's government or media or church. Um, and so I just think it's critically important for our school districts as we seek not only to teach kids how to learn, but we need to seek to teach kids how to relate to one another and how to participate effectively in, in democracy. Yeah. I think it's that fundamental. Yeah. Uh, but, but Mike, we're, we're lawyers. We're, we're supposed to be advising against, you know, incurring liability and all this and, and teaching about religion in the classroom. Isn't that going to lead to more parent challenges and yeah. more concerns that they're teaching religion in the, in the classroom? Yeah. I mean, is there any way that, that this has been done effectively um, or that there's curriculum available or anything like that right and now? And before you, before you answer that question, Mike, can I add to it? Because what I'm thinking about when I listen to you is... What about students who might be members of religious minorities or, in your example, LGBTQ individuals who feel uncomfortable having a conversation with somebody who challenges, you know, the very tenets of their belief system? How do we, how do we bridge those gaps? Okay, so Josh, you've asked a, a great question, and obviously this is sensitive ground that we're plowing here. Mm -hmm. So I would absolutely advise a school district I would encourage them to think about having a world religion class, a comparative religion class, a religion history class, and so forth, for the reasons that I've articulated. But <laughs> it, it, it takes a lot of preparation, and perhaps more than a traditional course here. So one of the nonprofit organizations, for example, that we have connected many of our school district clients to is the Religious Liberty Center that operates out of the museum in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. They are a nationally... Uh, well-respected um, organization that is uh, non-secular, non-profit, and they have put together professional development modules for school districts. For example, if I'm going to be a teacher of a world religion course so that I can go and be trained about how to do that effectively, there is curriculum available that has been recognized. Uh, and by I, I mean all faith traditions, whether we're talking about the Baptist or the Methodist or the Islamic Cultural Center or the Jewish Synagogue. And, and these are national organizations that have looked at curriculum and have endorsed the teaching methodologies and the curriculum that have been put together by organizations such as the Religious Liberty Center um, in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, we have a couple of clients that are using their staff to come train their teachers on principles of civil discourse. So these are our hard topics again, but the goal isn't to reach agreement. The goal isn't to convert somebody into my way of thinking. Mm -hmm. The goal is to create that safe place. So it might be in an elementary school um, homeroom. It could be in a high school setting in, a, in an advisory period that's conducted at um, the first period. It might be that we're training all of our staff on how to handle these sensitive conversations. Because the truth is, these conversations are occurring right now. The incidents of controversy on our campus, they're already happening. The question mm -hmm. is whether a school district is going to proactively prepare themselves through professional development. Uh, and I, when I use the word professional development, I mean not only with staff, but one of the concepts that one of our clients has articulated is uh, he is going to be looking to create professional development days for students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So students are going to be released early and there will be a three or four 
our session four times a year for students to be able to come in and have professional development so they can understand what are the principles of civil discourse. And, and the topic may not always be religious. It may be issues right. of race or other issues Politics. that go to the idea mm -hmm. of creating the uh, inclusive school environment. So I think that your, your point, Josh, is really well taken, that school districts need to be trained in how to do these courses and the point that I'm trying to make is resources are here, resources are available, nonprofits are available, and, and, it, and it can be done. And, and for another example might be the uh, Modesto City Schools. The Modesto City Schools had a major controversy a number of years ago, and they wound up resolving their controversy by creating a ninth grade world religion class that is actually uh, required for graduation. Hmm. And so far as I know, that's the only district that I'm aware of that as of this moment actually requires the world religion class as a condition of graduation. Hmm. So I, I think it really can and should be done because if we don't approach it proactively, then the controversy will hit the district and you're going to be finding yourself managing a national crisis mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. these issues will go viral. Right. And there are lawyers on the left and lawyers on the right that are interested in this conversation. Right. So again, the point I think of the podcast is to stimulate um, thinking about how to proactively approach these controversial issues in a way that generates inclusivity instead of a way that generates a national controversy and leads to a lawsuit. And, and I think another important point you're making is that this topic is too important for us to just kind of plug our ears cover mm -hmm. our eyes and, and move forward without addressing this issue. I mean, we look at the political landscape today and the discourse or lack of uh, civil discourse that is going on, and we just can't ignore this anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a very important point to make here. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's and, great. And I think especially in relation to the intersection of, of a student's religious rights as compared to a student's LGBT status, which has come mm -hmm. up pretty frequently in recent years, and, and that combination uh, of rights that takes place and is often um, part of debates in the classroom in a history or social sciences classroom. There's a California law called the Fair Education Act, which requires school districts to talk about LGBT leaders um, right. throughout history mm -hmm. um, and to talk about uh, the benefits and, and kind of the movements that have been made th through our society. Right and so state. I think in a similar mm -hmm. fashion, we've got a need to not plug our ears, not cover our eyes on issues that affect LGBT students, the, the past uh, benefits and, and actions that were taken by LGBT leaders in our communities. Um, we can't just simply ignore that those groups of people exist. Right. Um, and so when those rights collide in the classroom, that's where we find the big controversy. Right. And that's really where it's important for our staff to be trained and our teachers to be aware of how to handle that in a neutral, respectful manner. Um, with, And if you can build blocks of civil discourse before that conversation happens in your 11th grade class, and you can start with those professional development days for students you know, early on in the junior high, um, maybe even upper tiers of, of elementary school, um, then you've laid the groundwork for those tough, difficult conversations to happen without everyone running to their lawyers at the end of the day. Right. That's great advice. Okay. So I want to go 
back to a few other examples before we close of specific questions that I know come up in this arena. So Josh, what about prayer around the school flagpole before school? And I'm specifically asking about both students and teachers. What what can districts do with that with that issue? Well, it mirrors our earlier conversations about the rights of students and staff in terms of religious expression. So mm-hmm. students have broad uh, free speech rights, have broad rights of religious expression. So there's no issue with them praying around the flagpole before school, um, as long as they're not causing a disruption. You know, if if they were making a demonstration that was blocking traffic or something like that, that would be an issue that that could lead to some regulation of their behavior. But generally what we've seen is praying around the flagpole, not disruptive, just engaged in, in solemn prayer. Um, and that's fine. Uh, there's mm-hmm. no issue with that. And, and they can use the school grounds the same as any other group might use the school grounds or, or use the flagpole um, before the school day begins. But school officials, again, going back to their limited rights of religious expression, cannot encourage participation and should also not participate okay. uh, or organize these flagpole prayers. And in fact, the organization See You at the Pole specifically states um, on their website that this is not a time for teachers to express their religious um, beliefs to engage in prayer. This is a time for the students. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. even the organization that, that is like generating and leading uh, these t- sorts of events to occur on campus is saying this is not a time for teachers to engage in this behavior because ultimately the teachers, while they're on campus, uh, all of the students are going to see them as their teachers, mm-hmm. as public mm-hmm. officials. They're, you know, even when they see them in the grocery store, they sometimes feel that right. way. But that that's a little bit more nuanced gray area. But certainly on the school campus, they have a level of authority once the, the school premises have been entered by students. Sure. Sure. Okay. So what about um, displaying religious symbols, such as displaying religious symbols during religious holidays, Christmas, but also other holidays? We just finished Easter. Right. So, so, so symbols of religious holidays, uh, which have acquired secular meaning, so Christmas trees, candy mm-hmm. canes, those would be permissible. Um, so, you know, you have your Easter bunny. Mm-hmm. No, no problem with that. I don't think there's any religious tie to, to an Easter Doesn't bunny. Doesn't seem like but it. But where it's a cross, <laughs> where it's a cross, um, or it's a nativity scene or something like that, um, the Star of David, mm-hmm. for instance, um, for those types of symbols... You can include them but at, at, on school grounds, but it has to be related to this teaching about religion concept. It has to be with an educational goal in mind. So it's probably a good idea that these displays be temporary, uh, that they don't require any active participation uh, or worship associated with them, and maybe even including like a reason for why they're up there next to the symbol. A little placard that explains what the symbol is, what it's where it comes from in history, what's its societal contributions, and kind of what's the background for okay. it, would be a good way to kind of express the educational mission and purpose of that symbol. Mm-hmm. Okay. And really, honestly, you know, beyond religion, uh, there should be more emphasis on explaining to students uh, the cultural symbols as well. Um, we, we focus a lot on religion on, on this podcast, and that's fine. Um, but culturally, uh, there are some aspects of our, of our state and, and our country that don't understand 
different cultural symbols that are out there that, that mean something to a very small number of kids on our campuses. And so respecting them who are inundated with the majority symbols that we just are constantly inundated through, through social media, through TV, through other forms of entertainment, uh, they may not be presented with anything related to Kwanzaa, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they may, may not be aware of any sort of ethnic symbols or cultural symbols of importance uh, that they might otherwise see. So, you know, Native American eagle feathers mm -hmm. has been a hot topic recently. And, and so, especially in regards to graduation, mm -hmm. I was gonna ask there's about actually that a new next. law. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, AB 1248 uh, just got passed and it was made effective January 1 right. of this year, which requires uh, that if a student is wearing a Native American eagle feather or some other tribal regalia or recognized object of, of religious or cultural significance, they can wear that as an adornment at school graduation ceremonies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So any sort of adornment, so something worn with, uh, not replacing the cap and gown, but you know, attached to the cap and gown, mm -hmm. affixed to the, to the regular gown or, or hanging over the gown as a necklace or something like that, that's something that students now have a right to, to wear. Okay. Okay. Um, now, that being said, like I, I think I've repeated a few times, again, this all comes down to the idea of what can be regulated. Um, at what point do, does the importance of these religious or cultural ideas, wh when can they be restricted? Mm -hmm. And it really comes down to non-discriminatory reasons such as a disruption, when it's going to cause a disruption, a substantial disruption or interference with the graduation ceremony. Um, and, and that's going to be a case-by-case, -case, very individualized sort of basis. And, and that's where we would recommend, you know, if, if something like that is occurring, you get a hold of, of us or you get a hold of, mm -hmm. of a, a superintendent mm -hmm. or someone mm -hmm. high up in your organization mm -hmm. uh, to really evaluate mm -hmm. whether or not you, you really want to make the call to, to regulate that sort of speech, that sort of expression being communicated. Okay. Okay. So I want to move towards... Um, wrapping up our discussion and, and, and delivering some um, big picture thoughts, but I want to ask one more specific question, Josh, which is um, what are you seeing in terms of ideas that school districts have developed to become more inclusive and to address issues, say, of religious discrimination in school, which we've talked about a little bit here? Yeah, so in addition to the, the kind of world religions class and the student professional development days that Mike has mentioned, um, we've seen a focus on, especially in, in terms of developing a school district's LCAP, uh, the Local Control Accountability mm -hmm. Plan, and establishing these issues of how we're going to address school climate. Um, a focus on getting stakeholder input, sta stakeholder involvement. And that's not just your board members and their friends, mm. uh, and it's not just uh, the advocacy groups and the parent PTA, the, the unions that are already have a lot of stake in the school and have a lot of uh, opinions to provide to the board during LCAP development time. Um, but it, it means reaching out to those parents who are not engaged, mm -hmm. reaching out to the students and involving the students in your LCAP development process. And so having task forces that kind of are, are specifically designed to create an inclusive Comp a compilation of individuals uh, that maybe are not the majority voice okay. uh, are maybe not the ones that are most engaged in the school community. Mm -hmm. So kind of reaching out to those on the outskirts and inviting them in and specifically 
inviting them to talk about these school issues to get their opinion and their and their perspective mm -hmm. uh, on these really important issues. And so student senates have been set up, uh, especially at the high school level, so that way they can provide input to staff and the board about their feelings about things like the dress code um, and whether or not uh, there needs to be changes related to their ability to communicate their speech and their religious expression. Mm -hmm. um, there's also been discussion about uh, structuring controversial discussions into existing curriculum. Um, so taking those ideas of civil discourse, taking those, those controversial moments of talking about LGBT rights, of talking about past uh, religious uh, leaders and current developments on these issues and really emphasizing kind of the, the world that we live in and this this need for understanding, mm -hmm. this need for acknowledgement, not necessarily for acceptance of the values that everyone comes to the table with and understanding where we can find common ground amongst those. So it's, it's curriculum, it's stakeholder involvement, it's restructuring the school day to do these professional development days, uh, it's establishing new courses uh, at your school. There's a variety of different creative ways that are available to address this very important topic. Right. Okay, great. So, but Mike, can you offer some big picture thoughts in closing? What are those some themes that our school administrators should be thinking about as they consider issues of religion in school? We've touched, talked on so much today. What, how can we bring this all together? Big picture ideas. And perhaps number one, students have broad free speech rights. Number two, staff have much more limited free speech rights that with respect to the expression of religion due to the establishment clause. Mm -hmm. Bullet point number three would probably be, um, if nothing else, remember that schools should be neutral with respect to religion. And then I think one of the points of emphasis today is for a school district to think not only about issues of religion, but also of race and ethnicity and politics, and to be thinking about what structures, what systemic changes am I making in my school district to ensure that my school district and each one of my schools has a culture of care and has a feeling of inclusivity for all of the kids? Mm -hmm. So that's really, I think, the focus. So can you provide a world religion or culture class? Can you modify your curriculum? So let's think proactively before the crisis hits the district because the goal here of this podcast is to stimulate creative discussion, recognize the uniqueness of every district, but also try to be in front of the issue so that we can prevent the lawsuit and prevent the national media attention and create an environment where all students feel welcome. That's great. That's great. Thank you, Mike. Um, Josh, can you give us your closing thoughts? What, what would you like people to take away from this discussion? All school districts have a duty to stop bullying mm -hmm. and eliminate it. If we really want to honor that call to action, we have to address this issue. We have to come to some understanding of other people's religions, other people's philosophies and perspective, perspectives, and we have to create an a environment where we can engage in discourse in our classrooms, on our school campuses, without resorting to violence. Mm -hmm. This is a safety issue. Mm -hmm. If we don't address this topic, it's going to lead to the anarchy that we're seeing once these kids are growing up and becoming adults and getting engaged in the political arena. 
um, engaged in, in discourse on social media. Um, and so we have to address this as schools. Mm-hmm. Um, if, we, if we don't do that, then we're failing this duty to wow. protect our students. You've made it very clear that this issue couldn't be more important. Um, so thank you both. Um, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today, particularly more information about the seminar. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, everybody. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.